Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar. And I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today is Dan Egan. Dan is Director of Behavioral Finance and Investing at Betterment, and he has researched behavioral finance topics extensively over his career. Prior to joining Betterment, he was a behavioral finance specialist for Barclays Wealth. He received his bachelor's in economics from Boston University and his master of science degree in decision science from the London School of Economics. Dan, welcome to The Long View. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Um, In your bio, you say a key goal in your job at Betterment is to help make good behavior automatic and bad behavior difficult. And you note that Betterment's customers have one of the lowest behavioral gaps of the digital platforms. Explain what a behavior gap is, as well as how Betterment has aimed to close it. So I think mostly for myself, I think of a behavior gap as against some ideal benchmark, like an index fund might have an index, which is some platonic ideal it checks. A behavior gap is a difference between kind of like the outcome that could have occurred with less effort or less mistakes had the person not been godlike and omniscient in their foresight and their behavior, but they could have been achieved with a lot less stress, much like you might achieve a pretty good return in an index fund. And so the gap is a little bit the, the difference between outcomes of what people actually have when it comes to either their investment performance or their more overall financial performance of saving and spending and dealing with cash flows through their life. In the case of the behavior gap research that you reference, we were specifically looking at how well or not well people time changes to their allocation and their cash flows in their portfolio. So do people outperform the market because of when they increase risk or decrease risk in their portfolio and when they add money and take money out? Or do they underperform it? And there's a lot and there there are various different methodologies for this spanning from the sort of fund level research that Morningstar does to individual account level research that is very rare because it's hard to get your hands on individual account level stuff. And so our study was at a both an account level because Betterment clients can have more than one type of account or more type of goal um, and at the individual level. So sort of rolling those up, looking at how people changed allocations, put money in, took money out. And broadly looking at it and saying like, we're, you know, because of when they timed these things, were, were they better off or worse off than they would have been if they'd taken a sort of like lazier, more systematic approach. And what we found was that there was a very, very, very slight small behavior gap. I think it was on the order of 0.35% per year in how well people were doing compared to a sort of very low effort, you know, automate everything, don't put a lot of effort in strategy. And that compares pretty well with other studies that depending upon how active the person is, what kind of investments they're able to access. You see ranges from about 60 to 85 basis points all the way up to 7%, uh, which is a pretty wide range. Hmm. So it seems like we're at a juncture right now that might entice people to make bad timing decisions. And 
Would you say that's the case, first of all? Like, do sort of frothy market environments tend to encourage that sort of behavior? And how does Betterment, how do you think about coaching people to not fall into that trap of performance chasing that can often happen in environments like the current one? I tend to think of it a little bit um, leniently in that, you know, people, we're, we're coming up on Thanksgiving people are going to eat more and they are going to eat more sweets and so on than they would otherwise. And simply saying, no, don't do that. You know, being a little bit of a nag is probably the least effective way to handle it. And not only that, but it's a negative experience for the client. So there, there are a couple of different ways that I tend to think about this, most of which are not centered around telling people no. One is to try and make the focus and the attention on more virtuous activities, um, trying to make it fun and simple and easy to either pay attention to the goals that you're trying to achieve and all of the different levers that you have at your hands to achieve them, be it how long you invest for, how much you save, whether or not you escalate your savings, et cetera. All the things that are sort of a positive, like, hey, you know, when you come in and you see red in your account, that's a red that you could resolve to green because you have some control and agency over the inputs that are causing that. Another is giving them information at that point in time that probably should be included in their decision. So if somebody is on track for retirement, but part of that on-trackness is that they're still going to be investing for another 15, 20 years and accumulating a risk premium over that period. And they say, well, I would really like to go to cash right now. The consequences of that are that you know, for however long they are in cash, they are going to be earning a lower return, and that can send their plans on track. Uh, the same is true if they're sort of making a withdrawal, and they might not realize that they're going to owe a large amount of short-term capital gains when they make that withdrawal, which means that the withdrawal is worth less than they might think it is. So those two things are sort of point in time the consumer is thinking of making a decision. And as somebody who's involved with these sorts of decisions day in and day out, you have a little bit of insight about the things that people might not be thinking about in terms of the consequences of their action that they should, that they should have as part of their decision framework, and making them a little bit more available and salient at that point in time. And then the last is to give people a framework by which they can have fun while still being responsible. Right? So it's not, no, don't eat any ice cream ever. It's, yeah, of course, one day a week, have a cheat day. And I want you to kind of quarantine all of your advice inside that one day. And I want you to really enjoy it. I want you to look forward to it the other six days of the week. But I do want to kind of like time box or otherwise box it. And that's where we tend to say to clients, listen, it is totally fine for you to have a gambling or speculative play pot, you know, like go out. If you can get tremendous returns inside of there, that's wonderful. You'll be much better off for it. But we also want to quarantine ME mistakes or damage that happens in there so that it does not mean that your kid isn't going to college. Um, fun is great, but, you know, like we also have the, the responsible side of things that we want to be taking care to tick all the boxes on. So when you survey the landscape and consider some of the behaviors that we do see some, not all, but some investors engaging in crypto comes to mind, meme stocks, another example where, you know, on the one hand you could say, yeah, they're kind of getting it out of their system. They're experimenting a bit. This is healthy. On the other hand, you could look at it and be alarmed. And so when you look at that, given your experience and perspective, what do you see? So the thing that concerns me most about it is the asymmetry of what you hear about a lot of the time. 
And that is what I'm going to call noisy successes and silent failures. And it is very common to hear about how much you know, a currency has gone up, how high it is, people who made an incredible amount of money on it. Those sort of, uh, like sometimes we think about, I think about the news and that old kind of dog bites man, that's not news, man bites dog, that's unusual, that's salient, that's interesting and novel, that's news. So when we hear about the fundamentally unusual things in the news, the things that get a lot more press, that can lead us to having a really non-representative view of what's actually going on. And it does lead to performance chasing in the form of like, you're going to hear about the thing that went up a ton. Um, you're less likely to hear about a lot of the mistakes that might have happened along the way. And I use this mostly just because it's sort of a number one, a, a gut wrenching, but also a very salient thing to me of the young man who I think had a young family did some margin trading on a brokerage app, didn't understand exactly what was going on with the way the numbers were displayed and so on, thought he had lost more than his life savings and that his family was going to be in very bad shape and ended up taking his own life. And like, I, I like the idea of things like this as ways for people to learn, but you do not learn by making mistakes so large and extreme that you can't recover from them. Good learning, and we know this you know, time and time again, we know what good pedagogy is. It's usually like, we're going to put you through a course of things where there are tight feedback loops that have high fidelity, where you are looking to understand and practice a very specific skill. So I think that there's, I like the idea of onboarding new people to investing, to getting their feet wet in it. I don't think a lot of what's out there right now is effective as a learning tool because in investing, the feedback loops are very noisy. When you make an investment and it goes up, was that was because you were a genius or was it because you're lucky? Can you do it again? And they're also not necessarily sized well to give people the skill sets and the feedback loops and the understandings of, you know, this is the amount of risk that I took on when I made this investment. This is what I learned in terms of how to invest in individual names versus ETFs versus mutual funds. So I, I, I like the idea of it, but I think we do not yet have a setup where the providers of these services have a stake in their clients' success. They have a stake in their clients' activity, the amount of stuff that they do. And I think that that's a really nice switch that I would love to see happen is providers saying, yeah, it actually is our job to help new investors learn, become savvy, and do it in a way that is effective and safe where, you know, after a short period of time, you are comfortable saying, yeah, you have all the knowledge and skill that you need to be able to go out and do the complicated stuff. And that's not just throwing you to the sharks. So speaking of learning and financial education, we've had some good debates on this podcast about what works in financial education, what works and what doesn't. So what works in your point and what types of educational interventions are well-meaning but really unlikely to move the needle in terms of improving anyone's outcome? So my, I think there's a, a neat contrast here in that design nudges that we use a lot of the time. I often liken them to if you're writing a document in you know, Word or Google Docs or whatever it is, it's going to come with a font. There is no such thing as a document that doesn't start with some font. And it's just a question of what's going to be there. That's a lot of what the sort of nudges and defaults and things are, is things that you cannot escape them existing as part of the system. No matter what, you can, you can be thoughtful and intentional about choosing which default you use. 
financial education and literacy, I do think are wonderful things. Like I'm, I'm one of those people who loves learning new things sometimes for the sake of them, probably to my detriment where I've learned a lot of things that were not really useful in my life. Um, but I think that like when and how you do it is very key for it being a positive force in someone's life. So sometimes it's easier to think about how to do it badly. All right. So if I wanted to design a bad financial curriculum, I would teach people things in a very sort of mathematical and numeral way when it had no relevance to their life at that point in time. So think about teaching high schoolers um, whether or not they should get a floating rate or fixed rate mortgage, <laughs> right? Like just very important stuff, but not at that point in time. You want it to be when they are motivated to think about it, when they have some kind of a decision and you want the education to be useful to making that decision. You don't want to be talking to them about geometric math when they're just trying to decide whether or not to take this credit card or that credit card. So I think that topical, just-in-time, targeted financial literacy and education, when the person is motivated to make that decision, can be very powerful and impactful. It's a really tough thing right now because the people who are most motivated and who have the, the circumstances to be able to deliver that education in that way are usually the product providers of those services, mm -hmm. who might not be as even-handed as we would want in describing the pros and cons of different services. So I do think that there's, there's room there for saying, how do we, I sometimes think about it as, um, you know, we have different driver's license levels. There's kind of like a normal car, there's a commercial driver's license, there's a motorcycle driver's license. It would be nice to say, like, the more that somebody can kind of take whatever kind of independent financial literacy courses there are, such that when it comes time for them to take out a mortgage, much as you might have like a FICO score, you could have like a literacy score. And somebody says, listen, I know a lot about how mortgages work. I understand what's going on here. I've done that in some way. I am a better candidate for this than somebody who might have a lower financial literacy. Please give me better terms. And the dual reward there is that not only would consumers be able to understand it and be able to get those better terms, but there's also an incentive at that point in time for somebody to really have a high sort of like clearinghouse financial literacy score to be able to negotiate better terms on a mortgage. So I'm, I'm positive on it, but I also am very cynical about any top-down, you know, kind of like quasi-government mandated, do this while they're still in school so that we can tick a box, because I don't think those skills are like, you know, relevant and temporal to the decisions that they're making at that point in time. Maybe in that vein, do you think that the financial services industry in general maybe puts too much of a focus on retirement, especially for younger people? Saving for retirement is important, but do you think that young people get more motivated by hitting short and intermediate term financial goals like home down payments or maybe taking a sabbatical from work, that sort of thing? This is one that I feel very ambivalent about which I like. I like, I like feeling strongly in two directions about the same thing. So the conventional line is going to be, listen, when you're young, the dollar save that you put into your Roth IRA when you're like 19 years old from a summer job, this is what my father basically told me to do back then. It's very powerful, right? It is the most valuable dollar that you can put in there because of the amount of time it has to grow. And I think that there's a lot to be said 
for having specific labeled account types like retirement accounts, like 401ks that are explicitly, these things are for retirement. You should put your money in them. We want to, as a society, encourage you to do that because we've moved away from defined benefit or pension schemes and towards individuals being responsible for it. And I do think that it's going to be very hard for a lot of people to do a good job saving for retirement if they do it only in the last, I'm going to say like 10, 15 years of their working life, they will have to save just in almost sort of cash the amount of money that they need. Whereas the earlier you start saving for retirement, the less you actually have to save because there's going to be growth that gets you know, bundled up inside. I do think on the opposite hand, exactly what you're saying is true, which is that for a lot of people, the motivation is going to be a near term thing that they want to achieve. And I think this is tough when you say, okay, let's go through some kind of an archetypal, you know, this isn't any actual person, but it's, it's like an archetype of a person. They go to school, maybe they go to college, they graduate, they're going to start working in their 20s, and they might be paying down debt for, let's say, five to 10 years. And then they're going to start saving for the house down payment, which will be significant, and they do that, and then they've got a house and a mortgage. And this is a tricky one. They should start saving for the first four years of their child's life when daycare costs are going to be surprisingly astronomical and could really throw a wrench in the career path of one of the parents if they haven't sort of thought ahead about the impact that that's going to have. They do that. You know, then maybe you have like 10 years, maybe unfortunately private school gets involved and you've got another expense. Um, then you've got college. I was having a conversation with somebody about, they were like, what's this catch-up contribution at 55? And why does like $1,000, why does that happen? And I was like, well, you know, if you if you have kids and they go to college, 55 is about when you're going to expect that you're going to stop paying for college in some way for that. And so you're going to be like, okay, here, I have some extra money. Maybe I should start putting that towards <laughs> retirement. Um, so I do think that there is a sequentialism there of like, this is the normal, ordinary steps of life that we have to deal with. Unfortunately, backloading all of the savings for retirement into the final 10 or 15 years of somebody's life makes it an incredibly difficult thing for them to achieve kind of like easily and stress-free, puts even more, I think, kind of like forced risk-taking into those later years when you want to be able to decrease risk right when you retire to feel a little bit more in control and safe with those early years. So I do think that the ideal way is a blend of them and that we should always be contributing some amount and a little bit towards retirement to benefit from that, but getting people excited about what they can achieve um, in the near term. And I think just to I'll, I'll push on a little bit more on this because I think it's really important. We need to do better at helping people see these goals, I'm going to call them, before they realize they have. I, like a lot of people, was blindsided by how much early childcare costs. And there was no reason for this. I had my kid, um, I think I was um, 35 years old when I had my child. And I had parents who had been through this and like we knew people who had kids. And still, you know, like I could have saved up the amount that it really needed for childcare over the preceding years and not had it be put into other things. If somebody said, hey, by the way, you don't know it yet, but I don't want to tell you nine months before you need to start thinking about it that this is going to be a significant cost. Let me start telling you about the fact that you should be precautionarily saving for a kid before you have a kid. Let me tell you that you should be saving for a house down payment before you know you're ready for it. The longer in advance we can identify these things that people are probably, if they follow somewhat that archetypal life, they're going to want to have money for. That allows them to actually end up saving less over their life 
and enjoying it more because the market will make up or, you know, whatever investment it is, will make up more of that balance when they need it. So however much we can help people, either by having dedicated account types, labels, whatever it is to say, hey, you know, like you're a normal human, um, you're probably going to have some of these things come up. Let's start saving and planning for them before we realize we need money for them so that we're able to have a smoother kind of like more balanced life before that. To follow up on that idea of having sort of dedicated accounts that aren't just retirement accounts, but to other goals, are you a supporter of that idea? And should that somehow work its way into our system? Do you think would that help encourage healthy sorts of mental accounting that could help people actually get some of these goals taken care of? Absolutely. I think we we overestimate how much of it is about taxes versus labeling. Uh, so one of the it's a very subtle finding, which is almost a, a throwaway because it wasn't the main point of the paper. But one of the findings that you see over and over again is that people speculate and trade a lot in their taxable accounts. And that's a little bit silly. They also these are people who also have individual retirement accounts sitting next to them that are effectively a brokerage account. You can trade whatever you want inside of them. And critically, there are no capital gains taxes on anything that you sell inside of there. And time and time again, you will see people saying, yeah, but that's my retirement money. That's a goal that I have, you know, it's a little bit like, it's a a virtuous thing that I know is for serious purposes, and I'm not going to mess around with it. And counterintuitively, so people will trade more in taxable accounts, realize capital gains taxes, even though they've got an IRA sitting right there, where their net take-home would be better if they had done the same thing inside that retirement account. Because it's labeled for retirement, they are not going to do that. Uh, So I think it's good to have a little bit of tax benefit because it gives people a feeling like, okay, I need to put money in here in order to benefit from that. I think we underestimate how powerful it is to simply have accounts that are sort of labeled, this is what this is for. This is for retirement. This is my emergency savings fund. Um, This is for my first house down payment. I worry about the complication of having all the you know proliferation of different account types and different names and so on. I think we've seen that already a little bit in this sort of like FSA versus HSA space, which does lead to confusion. But if it can be done simply and in a way that most people understand, I think it can be very powerful for saying, I am saving for this purpose and it's a virtuous thing that I'm going to act a little bit more responsibly with because of that. You've written that inexpensive may be better than free. When it comes to investing, in fact, you say free may be poison wrapped in chocolate. I'm quoting you there. Why, in your opinion, are free trading services and, say, free index funds problematic, in your opinion? So there are two reasons. One has to do with the way our brain works. And the other has to do with the second-order consequences of how the person supplying the service gets paid. So the first one how your brain understands free. Your brain, and I'm not saying this pejoratively, is a little bit lazy. It likes decisions and things that are easier than things that are hard. It's going to try and go for an easy option because it doesn't have to think it through. And so the classic study on this is you're walking down the street and there's somebody who's selling chocolates and they've got a really nice chocolate for like 15 cents say some sort of lint truffle, and they've got a very inexpensive chocolate or Hershey's Kiss for one cent. So 14 cent difference between them. 
And you still say, well, you know what? Like, a lint truffle for 15 cents ain't bad. I'll take one of those. Yes, please. And you pay your 15 cents and go on your way. Now, later that day, you're coming back in the opposite direction. And the kid who's selling them wants to get rid of all of his inventory. He's tired of this. And has shifted the price down by one cent. So now the lints are 14 cents. And the Hershey's Kisses are now free. Whereas before, about 85% of people take the expensive chocolate when the cheap chocolate is free, it doesn't cost you anything, it flips. And all of a sudden, people start consuming the cheap chocolate. And there's some good and bad reasons for this. Um, the good reason is like, okay, I don't even have to worry about money. I don't have to pay anything. It's simpler. I don't have to keep track of what card is this on. Is it going to be billed again, et cetera? But it also means you don't think, is this worth it? And there's lots of ways things might be worth it. There's your time. There's the space that it takes up. There's whether or not you even need the calories or you simply say, eh, it's not worth a penny. And also, I've already had enough chocolate. When things are free, because we don't engage the part of our brain that involves trade-offs, we don't say, like, is this value worth what I'm going to pay for it? It kind of gets a pass. And so we tend to overconsume things that are free. We consume them more than we would if we even had to pay an incredibly small amount for them, even, you know, a penny for a chocolate. So free is categorically different to how your brain assesses things. And that is a, a kind of lazy overconsumption way. On the flip side, with be it, you know, social media or brokerage apps, when you're not the person paying for the service, that service provider is going to be getting paid by somebody else. And the standard quote, especially in tech circles, is if you're not paying, you are not the customer. You are the product. You are the sheep being sold to somebody else. And that, you know, like, it's kind of like, what does that mean? How does that actually manifest itself? So I'm going to go through how this manifests very subtly from the inside, which is, say I'm a brokerage app. Okay, cool. How do brokerage apps make money? Well, uh, number one, obviously, by people trading. Whenever a trade is brokered between two people, there might be a spread, there might be a commission. But when that activity happens, that activity is how a brokerage is going to make money in one case. In another, they are going to, if you hold cash, they will be able to make interest off of that cash and they won't pay you for it. So paying cash is pretty good. They will make more money in less liquid securities, things like penny stocks or call options, than very liquid funds. And so if that's how they get paid, that's what they are going to optimize for. You have professionals whose entire job is to say, how can we get somebody to trade more frequently in less liquid securities and potentially hold more cash? That is our reward stream. And they're professionals. They control the design of the brokerage app. They control the push notifications, the messages you might get. That is what they are going to push for. And you're not going to pay for it visibly. Right? You never get a bill that says the spread that we charged you on this transaction was 4% or 5%. But it's still there. You're, you're kind of constantly paying the toll as you go across the bridge. You just don't know that you're paying. So the combination of these two things that your brain says, well, it's free, so I can consume a lot of it, and it's not going to cost me anything, and that the person supplying the service says, well, what I have to do is, in the case of a lot of social media apps, get you to spend a lot of time and attention on the app so that I can show you more ads sometimes in a more targeted fashion, or in the case of brokerage apps, I want you to trade more regardless whether, of whether or not that trading is successful for you. It means that we end up kind of like over-consuming and doing too much of something. 
um, in either case. And in both cases, the cost is hidden because it's an opportunity cost of what else you could have done rather than something that you paid out of pocket. In the past 18 months to two years, sort of during this pandemic period, we've seen an influx of new investors into the market, including more people of color, more young people, which we discussed. And many of them are using these free trading services like Robinhood as their on-ramp. So is free a good thing possibly if it can help get more people started in investing? You know, I'm going to come back to the point about sort of like learning requires a framework and a, and a feedback loop that helps with learning. I love the idea, but I, I don't think that the way any of these apps are set up now encourage that kind of learning or even that kind of positive experience with financial markets. So there's a great study that was done in Germany years ago, specifically with brokerage clients, where they said we would like to improve the investing of our clients. We actually want to give them useful feedback about their success. And so they started sending out, I believe in some cases it was monthly, in other cases it was quarterly, almost professional level portfolio manager performance reports. Here was your turnover. Here were the trades that did well. Here's the attribution that decreased the value of your portfolio. Here are the trades you made that increased the value of your portfolio relative to the index. And what they found is they started giving these brokerage traders uh, these feedback notes was that they reduced how much and how often they traded. They had more diversified portfolios and they tended to trade in more liquid things. This was all great, right? This is exactly what you want to see is that here was a, a very good learning environment where people got high fidelity feedback about what led to success and what did not lead to success. And because of those feedback loops, they improved their behavior and their outcomes. That's the sort of thing that I think we would need inside of brokerage apps in order to say, this is a great on-ramp. Here's a setting in which you have a, a counterparty who has a stakeholder in your success, not in your activity, not in whether or not you do a lot of stuff, but in you doing those things well and you making good decisions. I think a tricky part of your question is, does it have to be free? Uh, and this is, this is absolutely one of the most sort of like torturous going back and forth things here in that I think odds are good if we charge some almost de minimis amount per trade, you know, like five cents per trade. We would see a lot of the positive effects of people kicking into thoughtful introspection about the trade and saying, is it worth it? How sure am I that this is a good idea? Um, do I really want to go through with it? Without making investing inaccessible to people who would bring lower account balances. And I think that's the real tension is how do we say, you know, obviously, if, if a, a commission on a trade is $5, then you come in with $100, immediately you have a negative 5% return. And both rationally and in terms of feeling like you should be doing this thing, you would back off. So I do think that technology has made it where the cost of those things should be much smaller. It almost seems silly to say, like, this trade is going to cost you 50 cents. This trade is going to cost you, like, 30 cents. But you'd be surprised how much just that sort of itty-bitty, teeny-tiny thing, which has not a lot of economic cost to it, but has enough sort of mental stimulation to say, are you sure you want to do this? Is it worth it? Would be effective. And I'm going to make a, a kind of like an example here of something that I saw internally with our client base. As I mentioned before, one of the things that a lot of self-directed investors forget or don't realize in the first place, we did a study a little while ago that said, 
I think it was something like 15 to 20% of people had no idea that you would owe short-term capital gains if you sold things in a brokerage account and that they were higher than long-term capital gains. There were others who knew that but forgot it or didn't realize it. So in Betterment, if you go to make an allocation change or a withdrawal, and we try very, very hard to avoid triggering long-term capital gains. And when you do sell, we use a lot selection mechanism which picks the lots, the shares with the least tax embedded inside them to sell. So we're very aggressively trying to minimize tax, but we can't always do it. If you say, please sell all of these shares that are at a gain and they're all short term, we put up a screen that says, this is the tax impact of making this change. Just so you know, like not, it's not going to betterment. This isn't a fee we're charging. Uh, come next April, the IRS will be aware of the fact that you sold this at a gain. And you know, considering your tax rate, here's roughly what we think it'll do to your taxes at that point in time. And what we saw was that when we showed that to people, if they had a significant tax embedded, I think it was something like greater than $7, the odds that they would go through with that allocation change dropped to, I believe, less than 1 in 10. And people would cycle through it. They would make less extreme allocation changes. They would wait until things were long-term rather than short-term capital gains. Uh, but so there was this cost. And I say $7 in taxes. This might have been on a $20,000 or $30,000 allocation change. It was not that the, the percentage was huge. It was just like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to pay like 3 bucks in taxes. Maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe I'll wait a little bit longer. So very, very small costs can have an influence over consumer behavior in a way that's surprising. What about on the spending side of the ledger? Frictions have been removed there as well with innovations like Apple Pay and the disappearance of cash from, from many transactions. Does that make it harder for people to stick to budgets? So I'm going to say no, but I do think that's contingent upon a intentional decision about how you budget. I think now it is easier than ever in order to set up and stick to a budget, but you're right, it is easier to spend money. And the specific reason for that, which I'm sure we're of, is that you know, if I run out of cash, I can't spend it. There's no credit in my pocket. So replicating that experience of spending down to zero and being very aware of the fact that you're going down to zero is the key thing. And I call this top-down budgeting. Um, Nick Coleman, our CFP, calls it pay yourself first budgeting, which is effectively, you know, you get paid, you have your big non-negotiable expenses, rent or mortgage, um, utilities, et cetera. And then you also have your savings. And that stuff just flows right out so that when you're looking at your bank account, all you have is your spendable money. And each month, each pay period, whatever it is, you spend yourself down to zero. And I'm at the point where I can get push notifications every morning or even after every transaction saying, hey, Dan, here you have you know, $200 left to spend in the three days before you get paid. So go ahead. But that's the cash equivalent of saying you can spend to zero and no further. Um, I think the, the other side of it that's a little bit trickier is less about pure budgeting in terms of managing your cash flow and spending. And is more about how easy it is to get various kinds of credit. And that makes it easy to spend more without really feeling a lot of pain over a short period of time than you would have otherwise. And right now, we happen to be in a period of relatively low interest rates. Um, hasn't percolated through into the credit cards, but I think it has 
percolated through into other spaces, the buy now, pay later, et cetera. So it's not like in the magnitude harmful yet, but it could be in the future where we develop the habit of, yes, like I will buy this now and I will have some financing fee that could be pretty high just for the sake of being able to consume it sooner. But I think in general, the, the ability to set up the feedback loops of this is how much money you have to spend, how can you automate the savings so that you save or you put money into the more virtuous things before you even get a chance to spend it. I think that's been easier than ever because of digital tools. It's just a question of you intentionally setting that up to work at the beginning of month rather than trying through willpower and self-control to have money left over at the end of the month that you then put away. Speaking of some of those household capital allocation choices, how does Betterment aim to help investors consider their total choice set? I would imagine that there might be some people who would come to Betterment and their best return on investment might be to pay down debt or invest in a 401k rather than giving the money to Betterment. So how does Betterment sort of provide feedback on those sorts of household capital allocation decisions? So the answer is that it's sort of firewalled and that um, right now we do not. We can help you to decide where and how to save. So if you come in and you say, listen, you know, I'm thinking about saving retirement across me and my wife's accounts. We both have 401ks. We both have IRAs, et cetera. Where and how should I save in order to maximize that? We can help you with that. Uh, we cannot, and you know, this is sort of firewalled within the, the client agreements we have and so on, we can't give you advice individually on where and when you should pay down debt, given the various types of debt, you know, forgivable versus non-forgivable student loan debt, et cetera. Um, we do have, I think, articles that go into like how to, how to make that decision for the person, the consideration of like interest rates, um, can the debt be paused, is it kind of like good debt or bad debt, is it asset-backed, et cetera. Um, while we as an industry have done a pretty good job at figuring out how to charge on assets under management, to my, to my mind, all of the, the models that are based on charging for either liabilities under management or the specific and independent advice around those things has not blown up. And I think what a lot of people would benefit from that doesn't exist yet is the ability to get that kind of like household across debts and balances advice in a way that wasn't directly attached to just asset management, to just the asset side of the balance sheet. I wanted to shift gears a bit and ask you about direct indexing. Betterment doesn't seem to be in that space just yet. I could be wrong, but it's been rumored to be on the horizon for the firm. So, you know, what do you view as the major pros and cons of direct indexing? I think, you know, I follow along with a lot of what other people have said here. And the way I think about it is that it is a great solution if you have a very specific kind of problem. Um, it is not something, you know, if you're somebody who's like, yeah, I just want to invest in a, a, a kind of like diversified portfolio, no strong opinions about anything inside my Roth IRA, there's not much benefit to it. And there's definitely cost and headache associated with it. The use cases for it are usually unusual, or at least have been unusual historically, in that, you know, maybe you're an executive with a concentrated position from your own company's stock. Or maybe you worked with uh, you know, some, some sort of like investing stock newsletter person, and you've ended up somehow with like 15 really weird concentrated positions over the years that have embedded tax in them, and you don't want to liquidate it, but you also want to get diversified now. 
Or, and more recently, you have ethical or moral views that you want to adhere to, and those are specific to you. Those values might not be well implemented by using a series of funds, even if those funds kind of like have some level of overlapping intention, they're not going to exactly nail the way that you think about things. So I think direct indexing, both if you know the transaction costs, which can be substantial or managed well, if the cost for managing the portfolio isn't excessive, and where you have a, a need for the kind of outcomes that it is able to handle, it can be very, very useful for, I'm going to say, most Americans, most people who are doing this inside of a 401k or an IRA, where tax really isn't a consideration, and where there are funds which can, not perfectly, but get you 80 to 90% of the way there of expressing your views, there's not a tremendous amount of upside. So it seems like one of the main use cases you hear cited in the context of direct indexing is ESG. So for people who want ESG-type portfolios, that they might be able to sort of self-select their investments based on what, you know, sort of their preferences are there. So I guess I'd like your take on that. And also as a behavioral expert, have you seen any indications that ESG investors are more likely to kind of stick with their plan because their belief system is aligned with their investments? So on the on the first question of does direct indexing allow what I'm going to call like a much more finely detailed control over what you're investing? Yes, definitely. Uh, I think it's also a lot of work. I think it's easy to underestimate when you buy a fund that is going to follow some ESG criteria, how much work you have outsourced and that you've kind of like taken the overhead cost of and you split it up amongst many, 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 many different people and shareholders. And in a way where it's very explicit to the management of the companies, what's going on there. So one of the things I think about is if a company knows that it is approaching, and I'm not sure exactly what the thresholds are, 5%, 10%, ownership of their company by a ESG fund, they're going to know, okay, more and more, I need to listen and think about the consequences and the perceptions of people who are holding that fund when I'm making decisions for this company. When that's done at an individual shareholder level, there's less of an ability to communicate kind of forcefully and clearly en masse what's going on there. You know, like, you know, there's very little ability for an individual shareholder to say, hey, listen, company, um, you've got a couple of decisions coming up that are going to drive whether or not I continue to invest in your company. Sure would be good if you leaned this way rather than that way. So I think that there are kind of hidden benefits to funds in the scale and scope and ability to be done professionally, both in terms of communication channels, but also in terms of the ongoing monitoring of exactly how and why decisions are being made inside of the companies that can be underestimated. So I, I just sort of think you would need to have a very strong view about exactly how you wanted companies collected in order to manage a direct indexing ESG portfolio on an ongoing basis that effectively. On the flip side, the second question that you asked, are SRI ESG investors generally better behaved? Everything I have seen points to the idea that yes, especially if that is because of an alignment between values and portfolios. So if you believe you know, in some sort of SRI or ESG because you just think it's going to have higher returns, well, then you're just basically performance chasing like everybody else. That's not going to give you 
any kind of, to use the, the terminology of the kids these days, that's not going to give you diamond hands. You're still just going to have paper hands. Um, and if things don't do well, you're probably still going to fold. On the other hand, if you are able to look at your portfolio and you're like, you know what? This portfolio makes me proud and it's aligned with who I am and how I think about things. It reflects my values as a person. I am investing in this thing for reasons other than just returns. I'm investing in this thing because this is the world that I want to see in my future. And I'm happy with that. They are much more able to stick through drawdowns. They tend to save more consistently, less influenced by market events, etc. So yes, I think that when any kind of values-based portfolio allows somebody to say they are investing in it for more than just their own personal gains and returns, it will lead to better investor behavior. To shift and talk about retirement again, one behavioral issue that crops up in retirement is that many people have trouble transitioning from spending to saving. How does Betterment aim to help people approaching retirement figure out how much they can safely spend? This is uh, the kind of like each each individual only kind of retires themselves once, right? But an advisor gets to gets to see lots of people go through this life cycle over and over again and sees this problem crop up time and time again. Um, I actually think there's a, a component of it that starts with the individual investor. In I think what you're referring to, the way I'm going to detail it out is that through the course of your investing life, you, number one, are earning money. You're going to a job 40 hours a week. You've got all of the social structure that goes along with that, the consistent income to cover your needs, and a little bit extra that you're putting away into your 401k, IRA, whatever it is. And while markets might go up and down because you're saving, you are seeing your score go up consistently. Each year, it's more than last year. It's able to go up and down really consistently. Over time, that balance gets to be large relative to the amount of income that you're bringing. So you're kind of like attention about, well, what's the, what's the valuable thing? Is it going to be the $15,000 that I'm able to save this year? Or is it the $150,000 portfolio that I see sitting right over there that seems a lot bigger? Um, as your portfolio balance grows, those market gyrations feel a lot more real. You know, the 15% drawdown on a million-dollar portfolio is a lot more substantial than a 15% drawdown on a $10,000 portfolio. The crux move, um, a crux is like the hardest move when you're going up a rock climbing wall that kind of defines the entire route. The crux move is okay, I have spent years earning money, having my needs covered, social structure, and having my balance go up. And I retire, and all of a sudden, I have a lot more free time. All of the market's gyrations seem directly tied to how much I'm going to be able to take out next year, et cetera. And so my anxiety goes up. The concern that I have about the portfolio goes up. And even though I might know this conceptually, it is very hard to say my job is to make that balance go down. My score needs to be going down consistently in a, a very good pattern so that I can enjoy the next 20 years or how long it is. There are a number of kind of like design or behavioral hacks to deal with this. One is to try in as much as possible to frame everything throughout the entire life cycle in annual income. Think about like annuitizing and saying, right now you are on track for $3,000 a month in real terms. And that constantly being the bogey and like what shifts up and down depending upon savings rate in the market is, oh no, the market went down. Now you're on track for $2,800 per month in retirement. So having that always be the unit of account that we're talking about in retirement 
greatly helps you say like, okay, well now I'm retired. So how much, oh, okay, I'm, I'm still on track for $2,800 or $3,200 a month, whatever it is. The other is the very commonly used bucket strategy, which is used to segment retirement wealth into kind of time horizon or needs-based buckets where you say, I am going to, no matter what, I'm going to have the next two to three years worth of my needs in cash so that I am always sleeping well at night. I'm never worried about that. Then I'm going to have another you know, intermediate term bucket, which is say the, the three to 10 year bucket that is going to be a little bit riskier, but probably still you know, bond heavy. And I'm okay taking a little bit out of that. And then I'm going to finally have my long-term bucket. This is my longevity risk or uh, my I hope it outperforms portfolio that's going to be run this year. And that's mostly just a mental accounting game to get people comfortable with the fact that on average, that portfolio is going to turn out to be you know, 50, 60% stocks if you look at it holistically. But they're able to focus on the next two years being safe and comfortable in the cash component. Um, I think those, those are the, the well-known ways of trying to get people to nail the dismount of employed life well so that they get comfortable. Uh, I'm not a, a sort of licensed CFP who's dealt with this live fire with a lot of clients, but those are the ones that I've heard and that really resonate with me from a psychological point of view. I wanted to talk about some of the retirement research that points to the value of non-portfolio income sources in retirement. There's been some studies that have pointed to the fact that people tend to like take greater pleasure in spending from Social Security money or if they have an annuity. What's your take on that research and how does that fit into the in-retirement guidance that Betterment provides to people? So I think um, one of the ways that Betterment tends to try and nudge clients to do better financially is to give their money purpose to say these are the goals. And it can be, you know, whatever it can be. We have a lot of Tesla goals, for example. And one of the things that does in line with what you're talking about is it makes people feel guiltless when they withdraw the money for the goal. It's like an achievement. I set myself a target. I've achieved it, and I'm going to feel good about pulling the money out of it. Um, what, what's tricky about it is whether or not we can reframe how they're spending in a way that is better for them, which is very, 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 very tricky. If we could have people feel guiltless and effective at spending money in a good way, this is part of what I'm, I'm kind of in the back of my mind is there's a lot of research that people, um, people who actually kind of like enjoy being conservative and safe and they can actually feel guilty spending money and they, they get they end up having a lot of stress about even spending money on the things that they knew that they were going to spend money on and that they've saved and they're perfectly fine for versus people who are a little bit too profitable who spend money too easily. Has Betterment experimented with a fee-for-service model, for example, offering advice on an hourly or a per-job basis, per-task basis? The assets under management model makes paying simpler and less painful in a lot of ways, but the other models where the client writes a check for the amount of advisor time he or she used, that kind of seems more fair. So can you address how Betterment is approaching that and thinking about that set of issues? Absolutely. We we have done a lot of trying out things here. So years ago, under the then head of advice, Alex Benke, we implemented what we call advice packages. And these are available to anyone. You do not have to have a single dollar with Betterment in order to use them. You can call us up out of the blue. And they tend to be very topic-based. 
So it would be like, I want to spend two hours going through planning for my kid's college education or deciding about a house down payment. And over the years, we refined what those topics are and exactly how much prep time a CFP would need in order to get all the information from the client and deliver it to them. But they generally range from, I think, about $100 up to $400. And again, generally for somewhere between one hour to four hours worth of a CFP's time. And they're completely that, you know, you pay for them online just like you would a TV. And they've been very, very useful for people who have exactly that kind of need. In fact, Betterment has a, a what we call Betterment premium offering that is a asset-based fee. And what we were seeing is that there are people who kind of had these like, well, really what I want is I want some, some initial help with getting my accounts set up correctly so that I'm established. And then I should be able to, to manage it on an ongoing basis. And we specifically have a premium call, which is like getting set up correctly, which involves just going in and saying like, let's make sure that the beneficiaries are done correctly. The allocations are set, the goals and targets are set, and then it runs itself. So not only has allowing for those a la carte, you know, topical or short-term advice-based relationships done well on their own, they've also done well for the digital advice experience because we know that more clients are going to spend a little bit of money but get set up in a really high-fidelity way, and then the technology takes it from there and is able to run things. Well, Dan, this has been such a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on The Long View. If you could, please take a moment to subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.